I just want to introduce our final respondent, and uh, uh, we're very uh, privileged to have with us um, Andrew uh, Goddard. Uh, Andrew, I'm not sure how many people know him. He's got a book downstairs for sale on, on Rowan Williams, uh, um, and it's one of the best that's out. Not that there are that many. How many are there? But uh, it's, it's good to be writing about somebody who's still alive because uh, you get them first, I guess. So I, um, uh, seriously, uh, Andrew has been a colleague of uh, several of us for a number of years uh, in his work on behalf of the Anglican Communion. But he is an ethicist of uh, enormous uh, intelligence and skill. Um, he wrote a doctorate under Oliver O'Donovan on Jacques Ellul, a uh, great French Protestant uh, uh, Christian theorist, social theorist, taught ethics, ethics at our sister school, uh, Wycliffe Hall in Oxford for a number of years, and then Trinity uh, College, an Anglican uh, uh, school in Bristol, uh, former associate director and now senior research fellow at the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics at Cambridge, Univers uh, uh, Cambridge England and uh, lives now in London as well. Uh, his wife is an Anglican priest who is the, the vicar of, what is it, St. James, the less. Um, it was St. James the more before Andrew got there, but uh, you know, that's, a, that's, that's neither fair nor terribly funny. Um, <laughs> but he helps out there. He's an Anglican priest uh, himself, and um, he has written uh, other works. Um, a lot of stuff out. Uh, one of the things Andrew does, which is remarkable and really helpful, is he has worked and written all around behind the scenes in the life of the Church of England and so on. So all these things at synod and, and uh, committees and commissions, you know, they, it doesn't come out of thin air. Andrew has been uh, very tirelessly informing a lot of the reflection of the Church of England, particularly on the evangelical side of the Church of England's life for many, many years. So we're very, very grateful to have you come and listen in and uh, tell us what you think. Um, I do have to confess, Ephraim, though, that I uh, did, after agreeing to your kind invitation and to respond this afternoon, uh, realize I don't think I'd fully realized what I was taking on. And Catherine talked about it, saying, what have I done? I think I have a similar feeling. I, of course, I've witnessed, I've on occasion given responses on occasions like this before, but I don't think I've ever done so faced with such a great and diverse feast as we've had today. It's been so varied, so many really insightful papers. Uh, each one deserves careful reflection. Each one opens up so many different avenues of dialogue, it's gonna be impossible to do justice to any of them, let alone all of them. So my apologies in advance to all four presenters. I'm trying to work out how to respond. I'll come shortly to some of the content that has particularly struck me um, as I read papers in advance and as I've listened today. But I thought I'd begin by stepping back and just helping us reflect maybe on the different ways in which the question that was asked as the title of today has been approached and answered. The overall title, you may recall, is Ancient Scripture, Modern Church, How Should the Bible Inform Ecclesiology Today? So very broad brush, I just want to sort of help us think back over what we've had in our four papers, because I think we've seen a fascinating variety there. Philip began by focusing us in on a single book, a letter to a specific church, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, 
a specific, careful, worked example for an argument that he believes, I think rightly, can be made from multiple biblical sources. We had unpacked for us uh, Ephesians' very direct teaching about the church, both in terms of our calling as church in God's eternal purposes in the opening verses, the opening chapters, and also its account in later chapters of our common life. All to show us how, according to Scripture, ethics, a subject which for many Christians, both lay Christians in the church and sadly even academic theologians, is detached from ecclesiology today, is actually not just properly moral theology, but moral theology located with ecclesiology. And it should be added, as he himself did, therefore, ultimately, therefore, Christological and Trinitarian. To come at it from the other direction, one of the great contributions of Philip's paper and the larger book, which I'm only just getting into, is not just to develop this insight. There have been other advocates, obviously, of ecclesial ethics, Yoda and Harvass, but Philip is placing it on such a firm, biblical, careful, exegetical footing, something that I think they and others have failed to do. And that's been one of the great strengths of how Scripture has spoken to inform ecclesiology today through Philip's paper. Joe, too, also took us to a single book, John's Gospel. He did so to bring the high-flown language of Trinitarian and communion ecclesiology language that, as he said, dominates so much contemporary ecclesiology, back to earth. He quoted at the beginning that, uh, that the Cyprus document, uh, particularly the line, for in the communion of the church we share in the divine life, a line which he didn't mention it, uh, opens the introduction to the Anglican Covenant. It's there in the opening paragraph as they, they quote uh, the Cyprus document. But this needs to be brought back to earth, back to the real church to the biblical witness, to the word made flesh. To, as he said, have the rough ground of scripture where we get traction, to attend to the primary data of scripture and revelation. Back very specifically, he took us just to 11 verses. Verses which would not perhaps be the verses many of us expected. Verses which do not explicitly directly speak of the church, but verses whose dogmatic exposition informed by Christian readings down the centuries, do indeed prove how ecclesiology is rendered both more theological and more concrete by means of retrieval of Holy Scripture. So a reading of a whole book, a careful reading of just 11 verses in the context of a whole book, and then this afternoon Ephraim got us to step back, to step back and look at the big picture, the mystery, the contested nature of what we mean by ecclesiology's subject matter, church, the church, capital C, and the big picture of the scriptures as a whole, a canonical witness. A plea to recognize the church as a scriptural reality, a scriptural figure, the divine shape, biblically described, of creaturely coming to be in time, according to God's will. A rich exploration of the figure of the church as Christ's bride, and the biblical witness to God's purificatory work, as he saves and transforms us in preparation for the marriage feast of the Lamb. And finally, just now, Catherine has brought us back to the Pauline corpus mediated through John Donne, a reminder, a brilliantly expounded case study of how the ancient scripture informs ecclesiology today and speaks to the modern church when we hear how it was spoken to and shaped and informed the church down the ages and how ecclesiology, like scripture, 
must be focused on Christ and him crucified and our communion with him. How the church, picking up the purificatory theme, the language she quoted of another Anglican giant, the language indeed echoing John 6, how having been washed through union with him in baptism, we eat his flesh and drink his blood that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. So if nothing else, today has, I think, demonstrated and modeled for us four different ways in which ancient scriptural text can, should, and must inform the church today. Careful readings of whole books and of particular passages. Through a literalist reading of it as a canon, God's word, God's gift to us. And through attentive listening to how others have read, appropriated, echoed that gift in the tradition of the church. I said, if nothing else, but of course, there was an awful lot else. Each of us will go away with specific questions, insights, thoughts to follow through. Let me just again very, very briefly highlight five that have particularly struck me. First, this whole question of definition. I think it's fair to say that most papers avoided, perhaps wisely, going into the detail about what they meant by church. For Philip, his concern is for ethics to focus on our life together in Christ. It is our life together, not the self, an individual relationship with God, but our life together in Christ, not in society, in the world in general, that is to be our focus in ethics. And so life together in Christ, marked by the sort of character that he described in his paper, is perhaps one way of filling out an understanding of the church. Joe's paper related that life to the life of the Trinity, being conformed to Christ as well, the reality of the lived local church. While Catherine has just focused us on communion with God in Christ that begins in each human heart and reaches in the same Christ towards the communion of all believers. So that the communion of the church arises from the union of each believer with Christ. But I think what has struck me most powerfully is the need to keep wrestling with Ephraim's observation that we're talking about something Christians themselves cannot commonly refer to, in his words, in the sense that Christians refer to quite different things in often contradictory ways when they use the term church, neither agreeing what church means, nor, as he said, can they commonly recognize it or point to it when they see it. This is an essentially contested term. And so faced with so many different, often competing and conflictual claims to be church, faced with declarations of impaired and broken communion within and between churches, does defining church really matter? How does scripture help us? Or do we need to give up on seeking definition, simply follow the famous example of a US Supreme Court justice in relation to a quite different phenomenon, and say, I shan't attempt today to define church, perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> Secondly, it's noteworthy that our focus on the ancient scripture has been overwhelmingly on the less ancient scripture of the New Testament. Of course, there have been some references to the Old Testament, uh, in particularly in questions and answers. Joe talked about the, the basis for John 2 in the Old Testament that he couldn't look at. Um, so we, we've had some of them. What are we to make of that feature today in terms of where our focus has gone? Is it right and proper 
writing probably because the church is an, an important sense, a novum, a fruit of Christ's work. To go back to Ephesians, are we talking about something which is a case of but now in Christ Jesus? These are some of the questions that came up straight away uh, as to Philip's paper, and particularly from David and from Chris. Ephesians talks about a mystery not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. A mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church. So is this in some sense a new third category? Is that why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God? Or do we need, in informing modern ecclesiology, to give much more weight than perhaps we've done today to the continuity of the one people of God, branches grafted onto the olive root, all being Abraham's children? Thirdly, related to that, I definitely need to go away and think more about what was almost an aside at the end of Ephraim's paper, when he spoke of the future destiny of the church, stressed we will be present before Christ, not as Catholic or Orthodox or Anglican, no surprise there, but that the figure of promise is that we do appear as the nations. How then do we think through the call to church unity, with which Philip opened and Catherine closed and has been another thread through the day, how do we think through that call in relation not just to theological diversity, but national diversity? Having spent yesterday reflecting on the fate of the Anglican Communion, how does this and the theme of purification relate to ecclesiology today? If, as Anglicans, we speak not of the Church of Rome, but of the churches of England, Canada, Uganda, Nigeria, being in communion, how much of our failure to be one reflects too much the power, perhaps the principalities and powers, of our respective nations and their cultures? What to do some lived ecclesiology would happen if the primates, when they're gathered by the Archbishop of Canterbury in January, each reflected on how their church's approach to life together in Christ bore the imprint of being the church of their particular nation. And what is it that would be needed to be purged, to be transformed, as we become the bride of Christ? Fourthly, what are we to make of the fact that to varying degrees, a common thread running through all papers, quite powerfully, I think, has been nuptial imagery. It was, of course, fullest and most explicit in Ephraim's paper this afternoon, but Joe, of course, took us not to where we perhaps expected, but to the wedding at Cana. And I suspect John Ford, the woman at the well, could be perhaps another unexpected passage rich for a nuptial ecclesiology. Although he didn't unpack its relevance to ecclesiology in detail, Philip referred, of course, to the household code and the ethic of husband and wife in Ephesians, the most famous of New Testament passages relating to church and marriage. And Catherine has just taken us through Dunn's poetry and the story of betrothal, a love sung to God. One of her quotes from Dunn as she closed drew on this imagery, show me, dear Christ, thy spouse. And of course, to pick up on my last but one observation, we can, as Ephraim noted, trace this back very richly throughout the Old Testament. There's so much more here, I think, that needs to be explored, and one of the, say, the themes that came out of all papers, at the very least in terms of current controversies. It warns us that what we say about marriage is a matter of great theological and ecclesiological significance. 
for any church to redefine marriage can't be simply, therefore, a matter of indifference. But the question is how, faced with the major changes in our society's experiences and understandings of marriage in recent decades in the West, marital breakdown, egalitarian marriage, picking up a theme alluded to by Philip on the household codes, the norm of contraception, loosening marriage's ties to procreation, same-sex marriage. How, in the face of all of that, do we hear this nuptial figure? How do we let it shape our common life in Christ and our witness to the truth that, as Paul writes, quoting Genesis, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And fifthly, there's been today relatively little explicitly certainly in the papers, more I think in the, in the question and answer and discussions, about ecclesiology and mission. And I wonder how ecclesiology would change if the ancient scripture shaped the modern church through being read in terms of mission. Just to pick up on the books and themes we looked at this morning, a common critique of an ecclesial ethic is that it can become inward-looking. Now, I don't for a moment tar Philip with that brush. Almost a quarter of his book, the last three chapters, deals with life in civil and political society. And that, too, is part of the witness of Ephesians. Within Ephesians, it's noteworthy that one of only two uses of ecclesia outside of its concentration in chapter 5 and appearance in 122 is clearly outward-looking, chapter 3, verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And then, picking up our other morning paper, and moving to the end of the gospel, we see how a church full of the Trinity is a church in mission. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Through the church, Christ is ceaselessly calling new guests, as Joe said. So five much too brief and highly selective thoughts, you'll each have your own, in appreciative response to our four presenters today. In conclusion, I want to bring us back, as they all have done, to the biblical text and to comment briefly on a passage which I think draws together various of the themes of the papers and leaves us with a word of encouragement and challenge. It's Acts chapter 20. The connection with two of our papers is perhaps obvious. Philip has focused us on Ephesians, and here we see the relationship between the apostle and the church in Ephesus in flesh and blood, real ecclesia, not abstract or ideal. Flesh and blood, with Luke's account of Paul's farewell to the leaders of the Ephesian church. Another intriguing connection with Philip's paper, supporting his main thesis and confirming one of his central themes about the character of life in Christ, is found in the opening verses of Luke's narrative, verses 18 and 19. Highlighting the importance of what Philip has highlighted, ecclesial existence and ethics, Paul begins by appealing to his pattern of life among them. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And then I found it's particularly striking. What is the first feature of that? Serving the Lord with all humility. And the Greek that Luke uses, and uses only here, I think, in his writings, is that same word Philip drew our attention to in Ephesians 
tapping off, off, tapping off, off, you know what it is. <laughs> My mouth's dried up. <laughs> tapping off through Sene. Paul also uses, of course, in his introduction to the Christ hymn in Philippians 2 3. So here in Acts 20, a reminder of what must be a central feature of the life of the church and its leaders, for it's a central feature of the life of Christ humility. Paul, in part, speaks of the subject of Ephraim's paper, the future of the church, a very specific concrete church, the church in Ephesus. In verses 29 to 30, he warns them prophetically of the troubles that lie ahead, troubles that have marked the church through two millennia, are still today and likely into the future. And he does so in words drawing on one of the great Johannine images of the church, the flock facing wolves. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And this shapes the calling of Episcopoi, the elders or bishops to whom he speaks, for their responsibility is set out clearly in verse 28. They are called to this position by the Holy Spirit, and this position requires them to keep watch, something requiring the grace of close attention that Philip spoke of and Joe referred to. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. Now, although here we have shepherd rather than nuptial imagery, shepherd imagery of course taken up by Peter in his first epistle, but not a common Pauline image, Paul's concern is that which we find him expressing in nuptial language in 2 Corinthians 11. They're responding to false apostles. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. What Paul preached, what he reiterates in Acts 20, is absolutely crucial for the identity and the health of the Ephesian church and the church in every time and place. He expresses it in four ways. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I've gone about preaching the kingdom. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. This activity in the service of the gospel is what has led to the very presence of the church of God in Ephesus and is always what gives birth and life to the church. And at the center of it, is the cross. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Here we come back to what was central in Catherine's paper, the cross of Christ. And I do wonder if here is yet another Pauline echo, albeit through Luke, in words she quoted from the Holy Sonnet, Sonnet 1, line 4 on the handout, thy blood bought that, the which before was thine. I think I'm right in saying there's no other New Testament text which so explicitly speaks of being bought back by the blood. And what is more, Dunn even has the ambiguity, I think, in, that is there in the, the manuscripts. Does Paul speak of God's own blood? 
as Dan seems to speak of the Father's blood, almost always at the blood of God's Son. Another interesting echo in Dan of this passage in Acts 20. There's so much more in these verses in Acts 20 we could unpack to inform ecclesiology today. The suffering and testing of verse 19, prison and hardship of verse 23, the Spirit's compulsion of verse 22 and prophecy of verse 23, the concern for the weak, the remembering of Jesus' words in verse 35, and the prayer as Paul gets down and prays with them in verse 36. But I want to end with the amazing words of verse 32, words which draw together other themes of today, the church's future inheritance, the importance of sanctification, words which highlight again what we've already noted. We are in ecclesiology speaking of the ecclesia to theou, the church of God, words in which we therefore acknowledge that though our ecclesiology and all our ecclesial activity is important, our words and our deeds are in and of themselves powerless. Faced with the challenge of how ancient scripture speaks to the modern church, the challenge of digesting the variety of approaches, the wealth of insights we've been given today by our four speakers, these words remind us that whatever else we say or do, we must, in relation to the church of God, however we define that, above all, simply follow Paul's example before the Ephesian elders and entrust the church to divine providence. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Thank you.